All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to back up actually to verse 19. We're going to read that in light of then what's going to be Paul's transition into a... Uh, he's, going to, he's going to take his discussion of the resurrection now into a positive direction. So just to get the contrast, we're going to begin in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive." But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he he who put all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. One of the weightier aspects of my job is helping families navigate the death of loved ones. Now, in a lot of these cases, moments that are for sure filled with grief also have their own kind of joy and gratitude. When we're talking about, and many in this room have been through this, when we're talking about a loved one who loved Christ and, and passed away and lived a life of faith and obedience. There's undoubtedly grief and hurt in losing that loved one, but there's also this sense of, of joy and gratitude in knowing God has kept His promises, and this individual was provided for in this life, and now the individual will be provided for in the next life. This is the kind of confidence that believers can have when facing death. But then there have been those occasions when I have had to lead people through the death of a loved one that was undoubtedly an unbeliever. Those are much more difficult. You, you gather at the home, and, and, and what, what in many cases is a time of remembrance, there's even laughter in some of these experiences. In a home like this one, it's just pain. I still remember the first one I did. I, it, the, the, the memories are vivid. I can remember going to the home of the family and hearing about this man. It was a grandfather uh, to somebody who was a part of my church, and And the the grandfather had very clearly lived a life indulging in all that this world has to offer. He ended his life as an angry, bitter man, bringing up the name of God, bringing up the name of Jesus, elicited from him a string of words I cannot repeat. 
this was his life before he died. I can remember being at the, at the graveside. It was a cemetery at a church. It was cold. It was raining. And maybe some of you have experienced this, but I can tell you the times that I've gone through it, and this one in particular was heavy, to, to stand there with this family, it, what, there was a depth and pain to that grief that only comes when someone has no hope. It's a different kind of grieving. Quite frankly, it's a different kind of crying. It is is almost this, this deep, resonating sob to hear these family members try and grab on to the casket. Absolutely certain. This man is now spending eternity separated from God. And then you have those on the other side who themselves were unbelievers, a few of whom were also angry and bitter like him, who, who, who absolutely believed that the only thing you've got is this life. After this life, there's nothing. I think that's the kind of person Paul was talking about in verse 19. To have hope in this life only would make us the most pitiable of all men. If you remember from last week, we turned our attention to verses 12 through 19, where Paul kind of takes our discussion from the resurrection of Christ to the resurrection of the believer. And and he made a pretty significant statement. Even though there are people in Corinth, everybody in Corinth believed the resurrection of Christ, there were some who denied the resurrection of the believer. And though it may come as a surprise to us, we may not necessarily connect the resurrection of the believer with an essential doctrine, Paul clearly believed that it was. Because Paul then went on a bit of a rant, so to speak, where he said, if you deny one, you deny both. To deny the resurrection of the believer sets off a chain reaction, a series of events that ends up with you ultimately losing your very faith. Even said in verse 18, that, that means the believers who've died, they're still, they're still, they're dead. They've perished. Those of us who are alive, we, we haven't had our sins forgiven. If we're not raised from the dead, Christ is not raised from the dead. And that means all of this Christian theology falls. And so that's why he concluded with that statement. So, if the only thing I've got in Christ is hope in this life, then the only thing I really should get from anybody is just pity. It's a miserable existence to think that there is nothing beyond this life. Of course, we know that the Bible is full of encouragement to us to consider, meditate on, make sure our minds are never far away from the fact there is life after death. Perhaps it's because of the difficulty of life now. Perhaps it's because of the nature of anxiety, how easy it is to maybe lose hope in this life. It's estimated that as much as 25% of the Bible is in some way focusing our attention on things yet to come. Now, some of that includes judgment, but some of it also includes these great promises yet to be fulfilled for the believer. One of the most important then being this promise about the resurrection from the dead, that just as Christ has been raised, 
so one day will we be raised physically, bodily, from the grave. So now Paul transitions away from the negative. Verses 12 through 19 were like a hypothetical situation. What would, that, what would happen if you gave up the resurrection of the dead? Well, you lose it all, if you, okay? So, that, but that's not the case. And Paul's got then this great transition, verse 20. It's one of the words you look out for whenever, you, especially when you're reading Paul. If you ever see the word but, don't start a sentence that way, all right? You need to go back and read whatever it was he just said. And especially if he says, but now, Paul's words here then are significant. This is an important transition. Everything I've just said is hypothetical, not true, but now we are confident of of, of something different. There's a different, better reality out there, and he states it, that first part of verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. So Paul's going to turn a corner here. So rather than continue to talk about the negative consequences of denying the resurrection, now he's going to tell us, so here are the positive realities in light of the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. And cue in on that, by the way. Now, verse 12, Paul had said this. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead. Now, read verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. You notice how one of those phrases is past tense. Sometimes the Bible does refer to the resurrection of Christ in the past tense, especially when it's referring to it as a historical event. In other words, identifying it as something that did happen at a point in time, verifiable, uh, testified to, all that kind of good stuff. But now for the statement he's about to make, first Paul is going to fast forward into the future. But notice how he uses the present tense. Christ is risen. This was such an important way to state it that the church for nearly 2,000 years, when celebrating the resurrection, would often begin the service by saying, Christ is risen. And you would say, yes, see, some of you have heard this, right? He is risen indeed. Not Christ has been raised, indeed He has been. So you say, what's the big deal? I mean, is this just kind of poetic? Is this just kind of, you know, a literary flair here? You do know that Jesus was not the first person to come back from the dead, right? There were others. Some of them, He brought them back from the dead. But every person that had ever been brought back from the dead, and you've got some examples in the Old Testament... Then, of course, we have some in the ministry of Jesus, the most profound one, though, being who? Lazarus. I mean, that was the guy who pointed us to the resurrection of Christ. Lazarus foreshadows both Christ's resurrection and our resurrection in many ways, all right? So, that was an important event. But what's true about all those people? They're dead, right? They're all dead. Lazarus went on to die again. Uh, Those that Jesus raised from the dead, you know, out of being in sickness and then died, they're now dead. You don't say that, obviously, about Christ. His resurrection is of something different. That's why sometimes Paul will refer, then, to his resurrection in the present tense. It's not just that Christ has been raised, but Christ still is risen, and and forevermore will be. So, his resurrection was unto life, and he has never died again. Now, this is going to be important, because this kind of 
forms the foundational statement. Again, for Paul, the nature of Christ's resurrection and our resurrection are unbreakably tied together. You've got to have both. You can't have just one or the other. They both come together. So now Paul is going to flesh this out. So what does it mean for us that Christ is risen? How does that apply then to the resurrection of the dead? Paul is going to now, in verses 20 through 28, describe how the resurrection of Christ then guarantees our resurrection, which I think really is a much bigger reality. That, that is the, the foundation of our hope. We are, we are not pitiable men and women because our hope is not just in Christ in this life. Our hope extends beyond this one. And here's what else I love about verses 20 through 28. In these verses, Paul tells us how the rest of history is going to go. He wraps it all up for us. Future history, in eight verses, he's going to tell us how everything ends. He's going to give us the most important parts of human history yet to come. Let that sink in as we go through it. It's certainly going to take us more than one week to do this, uh, but let that sink in. You'll notice, at the end of the day, there's nothing in these verses about politics. Those are not some of the most important events in all the human history. I know that's hard for us to imagine, all right? And I'm not saying it's not a significant thing in our country, and if you haven't voted yet, you should vote, all right? But I'm just telling you, infinitely more important is the information that Paul's going to give us tonight. (laughs) That no matter what happens on Tuesday of 2018 in November, or 2020, or 2022, or 3,000 whatever. None of that changes what Paul is describing for us tonight. History will come to its conclusion in exactly the way God decides. And that is absolute. That's absolute. Nothing will ever change that. No Senate gets to have a hearing on this, all right? There's there's no Supreme Court that gets to hear an appeal on what's about to be said tonight. What is going to be said in verses 20 through 28, this is how the world ends. If you've ever wanted to know, how's this whole world going to end? How's all this going to come to a conclusion? Well, you've got it here, just these verses. What we just read just said it. This is the most important information about how all of this is going to come to its conclusion. And so that really should give us great hope. And it really should give us, motivate us, it should encourage our patience and our endurance in this life, but also make us hopeful then for the next. So if we go on to the next slide, here's, here's kind of the question. So how does the resurrection then build our hope? What Paul does is he kind of strings together ideas. He makes a comment and it has a conclusion. And then based on that conclusion, he has another comment. And then based on the conclusion of that comment, he has another comment, all right? So he's going to string this together. You'll see this. I'll try and point it out in the outline because that's kind of how Paul is going to work out this argument. So several key ideas that ground our hope. Number one, when Christ was raised from the dead, he became the first fruits unto life. When Christ was raised from the dead, he became the first fruits unto life. So the first reason Paul's going to give why the resurrection should give us such hope and and what the resurrection of Christ has to do with our resurrection is because God has designed the resurrection of Christ 
to be the first fruits. Again, notice that statement then in verse 20, the second half. So the first part says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and... And I, and I love how it goes back to past tense, all right? And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So there was a work accomplished that only had to happen one time, doesn't need to happen again, one time in the past. And in Christ, the fact that Christ is risen means that he has now functioned as the first fruits. whether some of you come from a farming background or you've been in church enough to be familiar with the term first fruits, or you're just a really smart cookie, all right, and you can just figure out what it means, I think first fruits strikes us as kind of obvious on the face of it, right? What are the first fruits? Well, those would be the fruits that come first. All right, brilliant. Yes, okay, so we've got it. When, when, when they were expecting the harvest, especially in an agrarian culture, they would have been so heavily dependent on the harvest. It's not that you and I are not dependent on good harvest, but we don't really think about it, right? Unless you're the farmer, okay? But otherwise, it's not in our mind, but in the agrarian culture, not just Judaism, but really all of them, this was a big deal. The beginning of the harvest, the first fruit, the first production of that crop had some important significance for them. To to see the first fruit was a sign, all right, these crops are working. They're doing doing their job, so we, we, we can get this first round of good stuff from them. But more than that, what does it imply? Not only does the term first fruits imply the first the fruits that come first but it implies what other kind of fruit? Second fruit, right? Because you wouldn't use the word first fruit if there's not going to be a second fruit. So that's the only reason to use the term. You'd only use the term first fruit. Otherwise, it's just fruit. And you're going to wonder, how many times you can use the word fruit in this sermon? All right, well, it's going, to, it's going to be a few more times. I'll just go ahead and tell you now, all right? So this was an important sign. Okay, this... Now these crops have been successful, and usually the the type of produce or fruit that came out of this first crop was evidence of what they could expect to come later. So if it was a good crop, that was a good sign. If the first bunch coming off were were good and, and sweet and tender or whatever juicy whatever they should have been, then that was a sign, yeah, these guys this is gonna be a good season. That subsequent then harvesting is going to produce similar, if not better, fruit. So just in, in general, for Paul to use this term, I think it, it strikes us as obvious as what he's talking about. God intended for the resurrection of Christ to stand as a first fruit. This is a symbol then that there are going, there's going to be another harvest to come. That's us. We're the second harvest. And if in fact the image of first fruit means that what is produced in the first crop is then going to be repeated in the second crop, here's what else this tells me. This tells me that the nature of my resurrection is like Christ's resurrection. So how was Christ resurrected from the dead? Physically? Bodily? 
I mean, it, it, was, it was a real, literal, it's not, he wasn't like a ghost walking around. Now, I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, and I also don't want to lose you here. But there's a couple of pretty cool things Jesus did after his resurrection, right? He walked through a wall. That's a pretty handy trick, all right? So he walked through a wall, and I have no reason to think that our resurrected bodies couldn't do the same thing. But you know what I think was the coolest thing he did? Shot up in the sky. Has anybody ever wished that you could fly, right? Now, if you read the ascension, when Jesus ascended, did an angel do it? Nope. Did God send down a heavenly rope? Nope. Everything about the text makes it sound like he was the power behind it. He ascended. All right, so in other words, you look at these things and you can say, our resurrection will be physical, it'll be bodily, it'll be a real, literal, legit resurrection from the dead. We will spend eternity in a physical existence, but a way better one than this one, all right? In other words, the body of Christ was, if you could use this term, an improvement. The resurrected body of Christ was an improvement upon the earthly body prior to the resurrection. Not to say Jesus was anything less than God or anything less than man. He was equally perfectly both. But the nature of that body was something different, something glorified. And so ours will be as well. I don't know what that means. Does that mean we're going to be able to walk through walls and fly? Man, I hope so. All right? I mean, you're not really going to care when you get there. It's not going to matter. But I think that's just a really cool idea to think about. Clearly, our bodies will be something different. The other good news is Jesus ate. And I know at the end time, there's at least one supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All right? So there's a meal. So that means we're going to eat. But guess what won't happen? Won't get fat. All right? Yes. Anybody? Woo! All right, you're going to lift a hand. We should sing a song and pass a plate after that one, right? This body will be of some different kind. Jesus is the first fruit. That implies there's a second fruit coming. That means us. But there's more to this image. Really, this is probably what the image has in mind. This is rooted in the Old Testament. Now, you know when you go back to the Old Testament that you find a number of occasions special feasts, Right? In fact, the calendar, the Jewish calendar, kind of tracked along these feasts. Some of them were days, some of them were weeks. Right? There's the Feast of Tabernacles, there was the, there was the Feast of Weeks, uh, there was the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. We know that connected with these, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, connected with it was the Passover. We know there was Yom Kippur, right? There was the Day of Atonement, not with the Feast of uh, of, of unleavened bread, but that, that's another high holiday, the Day of Atonement. And then there was the Feast of First Fruits. Both Leviticus and Numbers detail this out. God commanded the nation of Israel that upon the first fruit, when the harvest came in, they were to celebrate that. And one of the ways they celebrated that, among some other things, was they gave of the best of the first fruit. In other words, of that first produce that came out of the land, they were required to give some of that unto the Lord. Now think about that. That's a pretty profound act, right? Because now for the first time your crops are yielding again, and what do you have to do but take a portion of it and give it to God? So you're telling God two things. You're telling Him thank you, and you're telling Him I trust you. I trust you that you're going to give me a second crop here. 
But the best part about it, I think, and one of those neat little features of the connection between the Old Testament Jewish symbolism and ritualism is how it points us to Christ. Did you know that everything in the Old Testament points us to Christ, right? Tabernacle, the temple, all the rituals, all the furnishings, uh, even, the, even the, the dress of the high priest himself. I mean, everything, even the thread that was used in making the, the curtains for the tabernacles. I mean, all, all of it, all of it pointed to Christ. The Feast of First Fruits was to follow Passover. So what happened at Passover? What really important event happened at Passover? The crucifixion, right? Crucifixion. And guess what that Sunday just so happened to be? The Feast of First Fruits. <laughs> Paul's not just being symbolic here. Paul's being literal. Jesus was the first fruits. He rose on the day of first fruits. That's profound. That this is a very clear sign. I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, you look back on all this stuff and you think, how, why was it the Jews were not just continuing to believe in droves? I mean, the, 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 the imagery here is so clear. Jesus himself said, this will be the sign unto you. You know, they always wanted a sign from Jesus. What was Jesus' sign that he said you're going to get? I'm going to come back from the dead. That's going to be your sign. And just to really make sure you get it, I'm going to do it on the day that's the day of first fruits. I'm going to demonstrate my resurrection is the first of many more to come. So, Paul begins here by saying, when Christ was raised from the dead, he became the first fruits unto life. Then there was a second. Uh, there's a second principle then that he makes, okay? So, he's going he's to follow this up then with this second part. So, when he became the first fruits unto life, he defeated death's curse. He defeated death's curse. Notice what it says in verses 21, 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So he follows this naturally. Christ being risen means he is the first fruits, which then explains how Jesus, in his work, deals with what is the double curse that stands against us. You you do know there is a double curse against us, right? There is not only the curse of sin, but then sin's consequence. There is the stain of sin, there is the inherited sin from Adam, the rebellion against God, this, this desire to indulge the flesh and not do what God has said. So there is, there is the sin curse that all who are in Adam inherit from him. But then there's also the consequence for the sin, death. 
And so Paul gives us then this statement. So death came by one man. And Paul lays out then this theology. We saw this, by the way, in Romans chapter 5. I'm sure you remember it, even though I preached on Romans 5 about 16 months ago. But I'm sure you remember all those sermons, so I don't have to repeat that. But Paul does make this same argument in Romans to talk about the inherited sin nature. Adam stands as our head. It's called federal headship, if you want some big fancy term to put with it. All right. Adam was a representative for all of humanity because we all come under his headship. He is the representative of humanity. We all then inherit sin from him. That's why the Messiah had to be fully God and fully man. We needed a better man than Adam. We needed a second man who could do what Adam did not do, and that is not sin. We needed a man who could take both our hand and God's hand. So we needed a second Adam. And so there is this theology, the first Adam and the second Adam, Adam and Christ. What Adam broke, Jesus fixed. <laughs> All right, if you want a simpler phrase, there you go. What Adam broke, Jesus fixed. And so he does make this comment pretty clear. So by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So with his resurrection, comes the resurrection for the rest of us. Just as Adam, in eating of the fruit, brought death, Christ, in being raised from the dead, brings life, resurrection then for all of us. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Don't be weirded out by that last phrase. He's not, he's not a universalist. He's not saying that everyone in the world will be made alive. He limits himself. Even so in Christ, meaning those who are in Christ, will be made alive. Everyone dies in Adam, and everyone who is in Christ will be made alive, but not everybody on the planet is in Christ, right? So, so he's, he's, this is not a statement about universalism that everybody's going to be saved. Instead, it's a way to say, just as in Adam all die, those who are in Christ shall be made alive. When he became the first fruits unto life, he defeated death's curse. This, this was critical, by the way. Because as, as I just said, you know, when, when Genesis 3, when Adam eats, Adam and Eve, when they eat of that tree, God was not unclear, right? God gave a command, and He gave a consequence for violating the command. What did they do? Violated the command. So He gave, gave them the consequence. In the day that you eat of the tree, of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die shall surely die. So I've got two problems. I have a sin problem, and because of that sin problem, I have a death problem. This is critical to understand, church, in terms of doctrine and theology. All right, you're not ready for this statement, all right? Say, oh, what's he going to say now? This is going to be juicy, right? The death of Jesus on the cross is not sufficient to deal with our problem. Ooh, uh-oh, some of you are thinking, hold on there, big boy, all right, what do you mean the death of Jesus is not sufficient? If Jesus is still dead, so are you. My justification is not complete until Jesus came out of the grave. Jesus had to be raised from the dead. It was not enough. Just the death of Christ was not sufficient. The work had to be a total work. Death and resurrection, because I needed somebody to pay for my sin, and I needed somebody to conquer death. On the cross, He paid for my sin, and the resurrection, He conquered death. 
My, I had a double cure, curse. He was my double curer. And you can sing Rock of Ages on the way home, all right, if you want to know where the phrase comes from, okay? So I needed a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. I needed him to do both. Save me from my sin problem. Save me from my death problem. This, this again, is the reality of the resurrection, that in the resurrection of Christ, we have the defeat of death's curse. By the way, if you want to see how this happened firsthand, you know, in terms of biblical theology, in terms of understanding how the Bible uh, draws this out, if you were to go back and read Genesis chapter 5, so you've got Genesis 3, the fall, Adam and Eve eat, they hide, they're caught, they're judged, they're covered, right? Then, 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 the, then the next phase, Genesis chapter 4, that, that consequence of death then is described immediately as Cain kills Abel. Then chapter 5 begins with the birth of another son because Abel is dead, Cain gets banished, but they still need a son of promise. It's interesting, the thirdborn was the son of promise, not the first or second, right? The thirdborn was the son of promise, Seth. So that's described for us in Genesis chapter 5. If you were to go back and read Genesis chapter 5, it is the Bible's first genealogy. It is the so-and-so begatting so-and-so, right? Those texts, you're familiar with these? Genesis 5 is significant because when you read through it, you'll see something really significant. All these dudes live for a really, really long time, right? I mean, you see some of them that live for nearly a thousand years. And my guess is when you read Genesis 5, your first thought is, wow, what would it be like to live a thousand years? But that's not the point of Genesis 5. The most often used phrase in Genesis chapter 5 is, and he died. It happens over and over and over again. Genesis chapter 5 is the world's first obituary page. So-and-so begat so-and-so and lived for 962 years, and he died. Genesis 5 takes us from Adam to Noah. Chapter 6 begins with Noah, and in between, we have, we have thousands of years transpire, right? Maybe not that much, but we have a lot of time transpire between Adam and Noah, and all of them died. We look at it and we think, wow, 900 years, that's not what's significant. What's significant is that he was dead. It's never supposed to be that way. There was never supposed to be an obituary, I mean, ideally speaking, for Adam. So that's why then the second Adam had to come. second Adam comes and defeats death through the resurrection. Now, now here's what, Paul, now the Paul, what Paul's going to do. Hold on to this outline. We'll get to the rest of it next week. But just to kind of prep you, here's what Paul will now do with the rest of the text. Does anybody have any loved ones who died who have been brought back from the dead? Okay, I've done 300 funerals. A lot of them are cremations. But even the casket ones. I've never been in a graveside, done it all, come back. Three days later, I had a family member call and say, Pastor, you'll never believe what just happened. There is a hole out there in Greenleaf, 
and Bougie came out of the grave. I don't know what happened, but he did. He popped right back up. Don't know how it happened, but it did. Okay, so that's not happening, right? All right, so what's the deal then? Jesus is the first fruit. He was resurrected. He was resurrected after three days. So what's the deal with the resurrection? Why hasn't it happened yet? Why do we have people who are dying and are staying dead? Why aren't they being resurrected? Well, Paul's going to answer that. Paul's now going then to, in essence, I mean, he's going to kind of intimate for us. He's going to understand, all right, this question's coming, so here's when all of this will take place. And he's going to tell us it's not going to happen until Christ comes. And he's going to lay out then for us this future history of what's going to transpire at the end, how, how the end of all things takes place. And it'll point us then to the future. We'll deal some with prophetic material. This is not the only time in this chapter he'll deal with it, so it won't be the only time we'll deal with it. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you now, there's no small amount of debate about the resurrection of the dead. Meaning, even among those who all believe it's going to happen, there's a lot of debate about when it's going to happen. How's it going to happen? You know, is it, is it a rapture issue? Is it a second coming issue? Uh, is it both? <laughs> uh, is it a millennial kingdom issue? Uh, those who don't even believe in a literal millennial kingdom, is it, is it just second coming, resurrection? So, I'm not going to give you the solid answer. I, I don't have the solution to all those debates. All right, we will talk about what the text says uh, here and then at the end of the chapter is where those issues come up, and we will certainly address them. Uh, but Paul's point for now, though, is just to point us to what is the ultimate hope and ultimate promise Unless Christ returns in our lifetime, every single one of us will die. But that's not the end of the story. We are not pitied. We have a far greater hope than anybody else in the world can ever imagine. There is a resurrection unto life. Jesus was the first fruit. That means there's a second harvest coming. And that's us. And that should give us great hope, uh, even in the midst of what can be some difficult days. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us. Thank you for time in your word. Thank you for the promise of your resurrection. And God, I pray that we would live in the reality of that hope. That that would create in us this sense of endurance and, and, and that it would give us strength and it would give us patience as we seek to uh, live in obedience to you in our day-to-day lives. I thank you for these who've come tonight. I thank you for their willingness to give of their time and and to to be with your people. I thank you for the encouragement of praying together as brothers and sisters in Christ and of of coming under your word together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so now we leave here and we again go into our, our, our separate lives. But I pray, God, we would do so in obedience to you. I pray, God, that you would use us as you see fit. Gather us back together again that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.